Lord, we are so thankful this morning for your unending love, for your amazing grace. How can it be that a holy God would love sinful people like us and send his only son to hang on a cross, to die and suffer, to experience the wrath and the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. It is amazing grace. You are the God of salvation from whom all blessings flow. And Lord, we are comforted and humbled and, jo- and overjoyed at these truths this morning. We ask, God, that your grace would continue to pour out upon us. Lord, for those who may not know you this morning, I pray that today they would see Jesus, that they would understand the good news of the gospel and confess their sin and trust in you to save them, to make them new, to grant them eternal life. And Lord, for those of us who know you, we also need your continued grace. We need the grace that sustains and changes and purifies and strengthens. Lord, we pray that you would be at work in us today and change us by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can be seated. And all the younger kids are invited to go down for Children's Church. You guys can go with Sarah and Philip today. Invite the rest of you to turn this morning to Genesis chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have several in the back. And if you just wave your hand real quick... Um, Mr. Huffman can grab one and get that to you. If anybody needs one, just wave at us. Can we get, Scott, can we grab a Bible right here? We will be in Genesis chapter 13 this morning. And you're welcome just to keep that. We, we got these Bibles so we can give them away to whoever needs one. So take it home. That's a souvenir. Also, if you're visiting this morning, uh, we have a stack of little books on the back table, little black books called What is the Gospel? It's a little book by Greg Gilbert. We'd love to send one of those home with you if you're visiting with us this morning uh, as our gift to you. I want to thank you for being here with us. And we're excited that you're joining us as we worship together and as we continue our study through the book of Genesis over the last several weeks. We've been studying through the first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, and we've been introduced to several different characters, and we are now entering a new section in the book of Genesis. Um, Rather than focusing on the history of the human race, the whole world, the Garden of Eden and the flood and the Tower of Babel and everything that's happening at this big level, now the narrative is zooming in to focus on one man, Abraham, who at this point is known as Abram, focusing in on him and his family. The world is sinful and broken and under a curse. But in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abram, and he promises to bless him. Not just to bless him, but to bless all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth, every race, every people, every kingdom, through this one man, Abraham, and his descendants. So that's the story we're in now. And Abraham is known in Scripture And even by people who don't really know a lot about the Bible, we know that Abraham is called the man of faith. He's known for his faith. Now, faith is a word that gets thrown around a lot. And very simply, to have faith simply means to believe. Faith means belief. But biblical faith, the kind that we're interested in this morning, you know, not just you know, faith that the Chiefs are going to win today at 3 o'clock. You know, not, not just thinking something's true, but biblical faith, the kind of faith that leads to salvation, the kind of faith that brings transformation in our hearts, the kind of faith that pleases God, the kind of faith 
that is essential to a relationship with God. Such faith is much, much more than simply believing that a few things are true. Biblical faith, if you're taking notes this morning, is this. Biblical faith is complete confidence in the promises of God and total dependence on the power of God. When we say faith today, that's what we mean. Complete confidence in the promises of God and total dependence on the power of God. That is faith. When this kind of faith is present in a person's heart, it's not relegated to the the area of your mind. It's not compartmentalized just to what you think. This kind of faith is a rudder that steers your whole life. It it controls everything. It affects everything. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. To walk is to live. All of life is to be controlled, to be guided by, to be energized by faith. Faith. As we said earlier, Scripture holds up Abraham or Abram as an example of this kind of faith. At the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, he hears the call of God and he responds in faith. He obeys. He leaves everything that's familiar behind. Everything that was safe, everything that was established, he leaves it all behind and he follows the call of God to go to a new land. But as we saw last week, this initial faith that was genuine faith, it was true faith, it wasn't perfect faith. In the second half of chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, we see that Abram's faith was tested, as faith always is. Faith, his faith was tested by a crisis. There was a famine in the land, which was a threat to their survival. And he responded to this by coming up with his own plan. He left the place of blessing, the promised land, and he went to Egypt, although God had led him to Canaan and promised to give this land to him as an inheritance He doesn't seek God's direction. He doesn't call on God's name. He he doesn't seem to trust in those promises. He leaves and he goes to Egypt. And by going to Egypt, he solved one problem, the famine. There's plenty of food in Egypt. But he stepped into another problem, didn't he? We saw last week that his wife, Sarai, was incredibly beautiful. And he was afraid that the Egyptians, who didn't have very much hospitality, they would kill him. And take his wife. So he urges his wife, Sarai, to lie to say that she was his sister, hoping to buy time and save his own skin. You know, he's thinking in his mind, I'm sure, as you and I would be, you know, how can the promise of God be fulfilled? How can God bless me and make, make my descendants into a great nation and give me this land if I'm dead? So he tries to help God out, concocts this scheme If he starves to death in the land of Canaan or if he's killed by the Egyptians, the promise comes to nothing. So rather than trust God's promise to bless and provide and protect, he resorts to his own schemes, his own deception. He was not in this moment confident in the promises of God. He was not in in the face of this crisis dependent on the power of God. And in his attempt to fix everything, just like you and I often do when we try to fix stuff, he makes it worse, doesn't he? Things get worse. He didn't bargain on Pharaoh coming into the picture. Pharaoh doesn't have to negotiate any sort of bride price. Pharaoh takes what Pharaoh wants, and his wife is taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, this is a crisis that Abram can't solve. You can't go somewhere 
to find better grazing that's going to fix this problem. You can't tell any stories that are going to deliver your wife out of the house of Pharaoh. He is stuck. Now the promise of offspring, the promise of blessing is truly in danger. But we saw that even though Abram was unfaithful, even though he demonstrated unbelief in the face of crisis, his faith faltered, he blew it. But it's not the end of the story, is it? Even though man is often unfaithful, God is faithful. God always keeps his promises. And it's no different here in this story. God rescued him from an impossible situation. He delivered his wife from Pharaoh's house by sending these great plagues on the Egyptians. And somehow the truth comes out. And, and Pharaoh says, here's your wife. Take her. Go and keep all of the stuff I paid you and all the livestock and the, and the riches. He says, just go. God delivers him from the land of Egypt. God keeps his promises. He has power to save. And so we find that Abram is delivered. But the reality is this is not the last time that Abram's faith would be tested. Even though he's out of this sticky situation, he will soon face another crisis. He's going to have some family drama. He's going to have conflict with his nephew Lot over limited resources. That's the story we find in chapter 13. So we've just kind of recapped chapter 12. Now we're going to jump into our text this morning, which is chapter 13. And the setting for this story we find in verses 1 through 4 kind of sets the stage. Let's read it together. It says that Abraham, verse thir chapter 13, verse 1, Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. In the setting, we see that obedience and worship have been renewed. That's really good news, isn't it? Abram has screwed up. He blew it. He took matters into his own hands and made it worse but verses 1 through 4 show us that Abram has now returned to the promised land. You see all this emphasis on the Negev. That's where he had traveled through on his journey before. Back to Bethel and Ai where the altar was. And it says this is where he had been at the beginning. This is the original place where everything had started for him. And it's where, where he should have stayed all the while. Having been sent away from Egypt with his tail sort of between his legs, he's now back in the land of promise, delivered not by his own schemes, but delivered by the gracious power of God. And as he approaches Bethel, the house of God, he comes to the place where he had formerly built an altar to the Lord. And that altar was not only an act of worship, it was a monument, a monument to the name of his God. And there he remembers. He remembers the grace and power and faithfulness of his God, and he calls upon the name of the Lord. This is his response to God's grace. I mean, God has rescued him. God has upheld the promise. God has delivered him and brought him back to where he was at the beginning. So Abram worships, as we do, when we consider our sin and God's faithfulness and grace, we worship. We sing to the God of grace, the God of redemption. This shows us that not only is Abram back in the right place geographically, Abram is also back on track spiritually. He's once again calling on the name of the Lord. That act of dependence and faith and worship that had been so absent during his whole journey to Egypt. Now, we aren't told what Abram said when he called upon the name of the Lord, what he prayed, but I think we can probably imagine there was probably some confession, right? God, forgive me for my unbelief, for my deception. 
we can imagine that there was some repentance, that there was also some thanksgiving. God, thank you. My wife is now back in my tent and no longer in the house of Pharaoh. Thank you for preserving us. We didn't starve to death in the famine. Thank you for bringing us back to the land of promise. And I'm sure there was fresh commitment. God, I want to trust you. I want to believe you. Here I am. I'm back in the place where you called me to be, and I'm trusting in your promises. I want to follow you. Fresh commitment. Psalm 32.1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, perhaps you've been there where Abram was. You've stumbled. You've blown it. You've tried to manage everything in your own life. You've not lived by faith, but rather by your own efforts, your own wisdom. And perhaps you've experienced God's rescue, God's deliverance, God's forgiveness, and his restoration. You've tasted the goodness of God. Aren't you glad that our failure doesn't have to be final? And think about Abram. He blows it and God restores him. Think about Moses who killed the Egyptian and then God used him to lead the nation out of Egypt. Think of King David who sins with Bathsheba and God forgives and restores. Think of the disciples who abandoned Jesus at, his, at, at, at the moment where he needed friends and support and com- company the most. Think of Peter who denied Christ three times. For none of those men, for none of them was their failure the final chapter of their story. God is gracious to redeem and to restore sinners to obedience and to service and to ministry and fruitfulness in his kingdom, in his program. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news for us, and it's good news for Abram. Everything is now back on track. His faith is renewed, and, and God's operation of bless Abram and bless the world through him, that's back on schedule. That plan is still a go. Not even Abram's unbelief will keep God from fulfilling his promises. But once again, we see that as Abram steps out in faith, rather than things getting easier, things actually get harder. Things get harder when you trust God and step out in faith. Just as famine and foreigners had tested his faith in chapter 12, his faith faces a new test here in chapter 13. We see the crisis in verses 5 through 7. Follow along with me. It says, And Lot, who went with Abram, this is his nephew. It's the son of his brother. Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So as the stage is set, we see that obedience and faith have been renewed. But then comes the crisis. And the crisis is a family feud. The crisis is some drama in the household of Abram. Specifically, conflict over resources. Now, there's, a, there's the book of Proverbs in the Bible, which has a lot of wisdom. And we have some modern Proverbs today, too. Proverbs that aren't in Scripture. And one of our modern Proverbs is, money makes people funny. Have you guys ever heard that before? Because it does. You get money involved, you get resources and material goods, and that can cause some conflict. The sad reality is that tension over possessions, tension over resources, can lead to serious conflict between family members. Some of us have perhaps experienced or even witnessed this. 
If you've ever had you know, a, a grandparent or a parent die and leave an inheritance, sadly, too often there's conflict over who gets what. Uh, whether it's motivated by greed or by a fearful survival instinct, people fight over stuff, over money. Sometimes when natural disasters happen, like hurricanes, we have looting, we have people scrapping and fighting for survival. Our hearts can, and our, our hands can grasp for the things of this world. We can be pulled by those things, and that's what's happening here. Verse 2 told us, if you look back at verse 2, that Abram had grown very rich. He had livestock and silver and gold. Remember that Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, had dealt very well with Abram because of his wife, Sarah. He'd given him many things. Um, but that's kind of a mixed blessing. More money, more problems. You know, the, the added riches bring their own headaches to him. Because not only was Abram now rich, but so was Lot, according to verse 5. And the problem they now faced is that the land could not support them both. That may not make sense to you and me to think the land could not support them. But if your riches, if your livelihood was cattle and sheep and goats, you need land. You need grazing. You need water. That's where all your money is. I mean, that's your resource. And it says that the land could not support them both. Perhaps the land was still recovering from the original famine. That might be part of it. We do know that the best spots were already taken because it says the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So they're already dealing with the leftover spots, you know, the unwanted places. And so the grazing was perhaps more sparse. The water was more scarce. And under this pressure to find what they needed for their livestock, the servants are fighting. I mean, imagine this. Imagine that, that you work for Abraham. Imagine that you're on his team of shepherds. And as you're bringing your flocks to the watering hole, you notice coming up on the other side of the hill, Lot's shepherds and his herdsmen. Now, you've got a job to do. Your job, when you answer to your boss, is did you feed the sheep? Did the cattle get some water? And you want to say yes, right? You've got a job to do, and there just isn't enough to go around. It's sort of a, you know, this town ain't big enough for the two of us kind of a moment as they approach there. And so everyone is grasping for what they can get. I don't know about you guys, I never go shopping on Black Friday. Have any of you guys ever gone like crazy early in the morning? You have, I know you have, to get some electronics that have just come out or something. I mean, people are crazy. You go into Walmart and people get trampled because there's only so much stuff to go around and everybody wants to get some for themselves. Now, it's kind of the situation we have here. You mix all these factors together. You have their close proximity, their growing economic footprint, the ambition of their employees, and just the needs that they have for their livestock. Well, you're getting some competition and some conflict. And this is now the test of faith for Abram. How is he going to respond? How is he going to respond to this test, this pressure? He's where God wants him to be, but things aren't going well. What's he going to do? How's he going to solve it? Will he scheme? Will, he, will his instincts of self-preservation take over like they did before in chapter 12? This family feud and the limited resources is a crisis. But we find the resolution for this crisis in verses 8 through 13. Look at how Abram responds. Verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we're family. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, 
like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The third point here is we see the resolution is that following this crisis, Abram chooses to walk by faith. This is a beautiful example of walking by faith. He believes in the promise of God. And his belief in God's promise frees him to be a peacemaker, not a survivor who's scrapping to get what he can. His, his faith in God's promise frees him to be generous and to offer Lot the best of the land rather than seeking his own enrichment. This is faith. Abraham's response to this crisis sharply contrasts his response to the famine and his deceitful plan in Egypt, doesn't it? This is a different Abram. This is a changed man. Or at least it's a man whose faith in this instance is triumphing over unbelief. Whereas his fear, back in chapter 12, led him to make some foolish decisions to leave and to lie. Faith here leads him to some wise decisions, wise choices. He wisely suggests that they separate, and he graciously and humbly gives Lot the first choice. Now, this is really a pretty amazing act on Abraham's part for him to, to do this, for him to suggest that they part ways and to offer Lot first choice to give him the best of the land. It's pretty amazing because Abram and Lot are not equals. They're not equals. Abram had the familial rights as the patriarch of the family. He had first dibs. He had seniority over Lot. So he didn't have to offer Lot first choice. He didn't owe Lot anything. Not only did he have family rights, he had divine rights, didn't he? He was the recipient of the promise. God had said to you, Abram, and to your offspring, I will give this land and I'm going to bless you. But rather than fight for his rights, rather than grasp for what he wanted or even for what he thought he needed, Abram has open hands and an open heart. Though he was superior, he acted as a servant. Does that sound familiar? That's true greatness, isn't it? According to the Bible. See, this is more than just Abram being nice and resolving conflict with a calm head. This is more than just common sense. This is startling humility for Abram to do this. And it is radical generosity. Now, why would he do this? Why would someone who is greater, who has family rights and divine rights, put himself beneath Lot? Why would he do this? It's because God had promised to bless him and promised him the land. And Abram believed. He believed this promise of God. And his faith is evidenced in the fact that he didn't feel like he had to force anything. Unlike the, the whole saga before, he didn't have to manipulate this. He didn't have to manage it. He didn't have to control it. He didn't have to scheme. His faith freed him to pursue peace and to exhibit great generosity because he trusted God to take care of him. He trusted that God would meet his needs. He trusted that God would bless him. And so he didn't need to step on Lot in order to get that blessing. He's able to take the high road and make peace and give generously. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Abram had hope 
that God would bless him. He couldn't see it. It wasn't happening yet. But he had assurance of that hope. Abraham was, Abram was convinced. He had conviction of things not yet seen that they were going to come to pass because it was God who made the promise. And God is always faithful. This is faith. Abram was not looking to what could be seen, but rather to what was unseen, to the future fulfillment of God's promises. So he's able to hold his material wealth loosely and to not worry about sustaining his livestock. He knew God would do all that he promised. And he knew, get this, he knew that God didn't need his help. He knew that God didn't need him to manage it or to fix it. He could wait on the Lord and trust in him. Now, Lot, on the other hand, evaluated things a little bit differently, didn't he? There's a contrast here, not only between this version of Abram and the chapter 12 version of Abram. There's also a contrast here between Abram and Lot because they evaluate the situation very differently. Lot looked on things from an earthly perspective. He looked to the visible appearance of things, and he looked and saw what was best. He looked to the Jordan Valley and said, hey, this is the best spot. It's well watered, just like the garden of the Lord, like the garden of Eden, the picture of fruitfulness and and bounty, like the plains of Zoar. On the way out of Egypt, they would have seen these well-watered plains, and he says, wow, This valley, the Jordan Valley, is like that. So Lot evaluates things purely on the basis of what's going to benefit him the most, based on the surface appearance. And so that's what he chooses. But the text hints to us that this decision that Lot made, although it made a lot of sense from the outside, if you just look at at things based on appearances, it made a lot of sense, but it was actually a very, very dangerous choice, wasn't it? To choose to go to Sodom and Gomorrah, is a dangerous choice. His connection to Sodom would prove to be disastrous. And there's already a hint of that. It says that these places were were fruitful. Moses puts a little note here as he's writing this. This area was well watered and fruitful, but he says this is before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, this region would later become scorched earth, literally, as God would pour out fire and brimstone on these wicked cities, it would become a salty region that was barren, a desert where nothing grows. Some of us who have had the, the privilege of traveling there to Israel, you've seen this region near the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea. There's nothing there. It's burnt. It's scorched earth. It doesn't sound very fruitful or well watered. And the reason that it became such was that the sin of these cities was so offensive to God that he would soon destroy them. He would soon destroy them. Verse 13 says, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. We're all sinners against the Lord, but it says these guys were great, great sinners, great wickedness. It was above and beyond what's even normal. Their depravity was so far, far gone, and we'll see that in a few chapters later. But we see a contrast here between the way Abram evaluates the situation and between the way Lot evaluates the situation. Abram walks by faith and Lot is walking by sight. And the irony here is that the best place ends up being the worst. And as we will see, the one who humbles himself is actually the one who ends up being exalted. We see the result of Abram walking by faith. We see God's blessing upon him in in verses 14 through 18. The the final result of all this, number four, is that faith is rewarded and the promise is actually expanded. Faith is rewarded and the promise is expanded. Look in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, 
Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. What started off as a family feud, a crisis, becomes an opportunity for faith, and it becomes the prelude to blessing. Trials in your life are the same way, an opportunity for faith, and perhaps just a prelude to blessing. Following Abram's demonstration of faith, God speaks, and his word to Abram reveals that he is pleased by Abram's faith. Abram has been a great example of what we find, the wisdom of Proverbs chapter 3, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. And that's exactly what God is doing. Abram is trusting in God And God is guiding him. God is clearing a path for him and promising to bless him. What we find here is that the original promise of chapter 12 is being expanded upon. It's going to be even better, even more than what Abram originally had heard. And that promise that was a bit vague at first, God's now starting to fill in the details and add more revelation, more light to this promise. And this promise will continue to grow and expand throughout Genesis and throughout the Old Testament and even throughout all of Scripture as we find that the blessing of God extends through Abram to all the world. We saw back in chapter 12, if you look at chapter 12, verse 7, we see what God had told Abram when he finally got to Canaan. In verse 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. To your offspring I will give this land. There's two elements there, offspring his seed, his descendants, his children, and his children's children, and the children's children's children. There's offspring, and then there's also land. Two elements. And Abram had neither. He didn't have land or offspring, but God promised to give him both. And these two elements become expanded on here. This land, from chapter 12, verse 7, now becomes the land that you see. When you look north, south, east, and west, everything you see, it becomes the land that you will walk throughout. He says, walk throughout it and see everything that I will give you. It's going to be yours and your offsprings. We see here that Abram had offered Lot the best part of the land. But now God promises Abram the whole thing. The whole thing. He invites him to walk throughout All of it, and to survey his inheritance. Now, Abram did not yet possess this land, but walking throughout it shows it is destined to be his. It's kind of like if you've ever if you've ever bought a house, or maybe you've signed a contract to rent an apartment or a townhouse or duplex or something. Now you sign the papers and it's not yet yours. You have to close at the end of the month, right? But what do you do? You go and you walk around the house, you go, hey, this is where the kids' room is gonna be, and let's put the couch here. And you go down to the basement and say, Oh, we can store stuff here, and you start already envisioning what it's going to look like to live there. That's what God's inviting Abram to do. He says, hey, take a walk. See it all because this is going to be yours. It's going to be yours. So walk around and check out your new place. Abram had opened his hands and he had allowed Lot first choice. And now God is filling Abram's hands. It says, all this is going to be yours. 
Not only is the promise of land expanded, but the promise of offspring is as well. That one little word, offspring, now becomes, your offspring will be as the dust of the earth. My kids like to look in the window, you know, and you see the little dust particles floating through the air, and they gross out talking about how that's probably our skin cells, you know, they're floating around. Could you count all the pieces of dust in your house? Do you think you could? Do you think you could count all the pieces of dust in Lawrence? What about all the pieces of dust in the world? You could never count that, right? God says your children are going to be so many you won't even be able to count them. Later, God will use other metaphors to describe the great number of offspring promised to Abram. In Genesis 15, 5, God says, look towards the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. In Genesis 22, he says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. If you can count the pieces of sand, if you can count the stars in the sky, if you can count the dust in the earth, that's how many children, descendants, you will have, Abram. Now, this promise is going to be fulfilled one day, fulfilled, first of all, in the nation Israel. They would become a great nation, and they would possess this land. And in one sense, that would bring fulfillment to his promise. But this promise even has elements to it that go beyond that, beyond even the nation Israel, beyond even the borders of this ethnic people group. When we get to the New Testament, we see this promise continues to expand. It continues to grow. And Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians 3.6, listen to this, in light of everything we just read. I'll try not to comment a lot. I just want to read it slowly, and you chew on this. Paul writes that just as Abram, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, that he would save The Gentiles, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, not only would Abram be the father of the nation Israel, the man of faith would be the father of all who believe. And that means many of us here in this room today. That means that, that, in, that by faith, many of you here, that we have become children, offspring of Abraham. That God is fulfilling this promise to Abraham in even greater ways than he could have ever imagined. This is like a seed of the gospel. That God was going to save people through faith. And that they would receive the blessing promised to Abraham. That's great news. More than the dust of the earth, more than the stars of the sky, more than the sand on the seashore. God is saving people all around the world and all throughout the centuries. As they place their faith and trust in Jesus, they become sons and daughters of Abraham and recipients of God's blessing. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and all this talk about blessing, about being blessed by God, if that sounds appealing to you and you say, you know what, I feel far from God right now. I don't feel blessed by him. Listen, the great blessing that God wants to give you is a relationship with himself. He wants to give you life in Jesus Christ. And what do you have to do to receive this promise? Do you have to be born an Israelite? Do you have to be Jewish? No, you only have to have faith. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness and the new life and the eternal blessing 
that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what God offers to us. This promise continues to find fulfillment as men and women, boys and girls, place their faith and trust in Jesus. It's happening today because God always keeps his promises, doesn't he? Lot had separated from Abram. He would not be the heir. God promised offspring. Lot had taken the best portion of the land, but God now promises all of it would ultimately be given to Abram and to his descendants. And as we get to the New Testament in Romans chapter 4, it says it's even bigger than just the land of Canaan. It's the whole earth that we inherit the entire earth. God's promises fulfilled. What grace that God would give us such rich blessings. So how does Abram respond to this incredible promise of land and offspring? Well, he responds with worship, doesn't he? With worship. We see that he came and settled in verse 18 by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Just as the story started with Abraham calling on the name of the Lord, so it ends with him building an altar to the Lord. This story of faith is bracketed, you know, bookended, by worship, which is the expression of faith, isn't it? It's worship, marked by worship. Abram is trusting in God. He is devoted to his God, the God of promise, and he walks by faith. He's free to be open-hearted towards others and, and, and open-handed with his possessions. He doesn't have to fight for his rights. He doesn't have to grasp for the things on this earth. Why? Because he has faith. He has complete confidence in God's promises, and he is totally dependent on God's power. So he walks by faith. So we have to ask ourselves a question this morning. How do you, how do I, how do we evaluate life? How do we face crises and tests? What guides and determines our decisions? Do you see things through the lens of faith? Is it the promises of God that guide you and guard you as you walk throughout your life? Or do you get sucked into measuring everything by the value system of the world? See, it's easy to judge things and to make decisions based on what we see, what's in front of us, the dollars and cents, right? The face value of things. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul writes that we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Guys, walking by faith is hard, isn't it? It's a challenge. It's a challenge to say no to something when everything in you screams yes, but God is saying, trust me, trust me. It's hard to say yes to something when you know it will mean difficulty, you know it will mean risk, you know it will mean hardship, and everything in you screams no, but God says, trust me, trust me. It's hard to walk by faith. You know, the world tells us that physical beauty is ultimate. The world tells us that money is what matters. It's all about the, do- the bottom line. The world tells us that, the- that your popularity and what other people think of you gives you worth. The world tells us that success in the business world is the measure of a man's stature. The world tells us that you need to keep up with the Joneses. The world tells us that entertainment will bring you joy and that leisure and vacations will bring you rest. 
But sometimes what appears good and what appears needed and what appears best from the world's perspective is lacking in true value and in true beauty and cannot provide true peace, cannot provide true joy, cannot provide real satisfaction and real rest. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, that is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friends, this is an invitation to wisdom this morning, to wisdom. We need this kind of a perspective on life and on money and on stuff and on choices and decisions, on choosing where to go to college, who to marry, where to go to church, how to answer that tough question from your boss. We need to walk by faith. We need this perspective to see the things that are unseen, and not be controlled by what everything looks like on the surface. But you know what? It takes faith. It takes faith, doesn't it? To believe that the last will be first and the first will be last. It takes faith to believe that in losing our lives, like Jesus says, we actually save it. it. takes faith to believe that through being crucified with Christ, that we actually begin to live. If we lack confidence in the promises of God, and if you don't depend on his power, then what's going to happen is you're going to waste your life reaching for things that will not last. You'll be like Lot, making decisions on the surface that end up not paying out in the long run. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's hard because you can't see heaven. It's hard because you can't see your eternal rewards. I can see my bank account. I can see what my house looks like. I can see what kind of shape my car is in. I can see what people think of me. But I can't see that. But Jesus says, labor for that which lasts and for that which has eternal value. If you have faith in the promises of God, that he is with you, that his children will receive a future inheritance, if you believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, if you believe that the sufferings of this present time, like Paul says in Romans 8, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed, then it's going to change your life. It will change you. Not just how you think, but how you live, the choices you make. You'll be able to say that I don't have to fight for my rights because God is my advocate. You'll be able to say I don't have to grasp for earthly treasures because God is my reward. Christ is my treasure. Whom have I on heaven? Or whom am I? Whom have I in heaven and earth but you? God is my portion, my treasure, as the psalmist writes. You'll be able to say, I don't have to manage and control everything because God is sovereign. Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Whatever God leads me into, he's in charge, and I'm good with that. I'm good with that. How you respond under pressure in the, faith, in the face of crisis is going to reveal the strength of your faith. It's going to reveal the object of your faith. 
Are you trusting in yourself or trusting in the God of promise who makes and keeps precious promises, promises that bring salvation and blessing and life and joy and satisfaction? Those who believe the promises of God will be free to rest, free to wait on God, free to live with open hearts and open hands towards others. My prayer for myself this week and for you here as part of our church is that God would grant us eyes of faith, that we would be able to to hold not to what is seen, but to reach for the things that are unseen, that we would trust in his promises and simply wait on him as we seek to follow his call for our lives. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can be confident in your promises because you are faithful. We thank you that we can depend on your power. It doesn't depend on us. You are faithful, you are strong, you are mighty to save. And there is nothing that is too hard for you. Nothing that is too hard for you. God, give us faith to believe these things. Lord, protect us from from relying on our own strength and our own skill, our own schemes. Lord, give us the ability, the, the power, the strength through your Holy Spirit to walk by faith, to live for eternity, to reach for what matters, and to have open hearts and open hands towards our brothers and sisters, towards our neighbors, towards those in need. I pray that our desire for survival would never get in the way of us trusting in your promises. I pray, Lord, for those this morning who may be here who do not have this kind of faith. They do not have the kind of faith that saves, that transforms a heart, and that leads to salvation. Perhaps they believe that you're there and that you're real, but they've never placed their trust in you. They've never repented of their sin and dedicated themselves to you and allowed you to come in and change them. I pray, God, that today they would hear the offer of blessing, of life, of relationship with you. I pray that they would come to the foot of the cross and believe your promise that Christ died for sinners and that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I pray that they would believe that promise and that they would depend on your power. Lord, we know we cannot save ourselves. None of our good works can atone for our sins. But the gospel, what Jesus did on the cross, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So I pray, Lord, that you would bring salvation today to those who need it, and that you would strengthen us, your children, to walk by faith and not by sight, that we might glorify you, that we might follow your call, that we might carry on your mission in this world. We pray all of this in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus. Amen.